Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Today is our second Sunday in this book that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write long ago. As you turn there, and as I have surveyed my New Testament, uh, I was able to count 19 letters in the New Testament to individually named churches. The Old Testament was written to Israel and sometimes Judah. And we are in the church age, and you see in the New Testament letters to churches and individuals. We have Timothy and Titus and Philemon and so forth. But I have found 19 letters in my New Testament. You're familiar with many of them, Romans, Corinthians. There's two letters to the church in Colossae and Philippi that we're in and Ephesus. Uh, We get over to uh, the book of Acts, and we see a letter from the apostles and the elders that came out of the Jerusalem council, and they wrote a letter to churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And then we get to about seven letters, not about, exactly seven letters in the book of Revelation. And wow, those are quite interesting reads. I think of all the letters in the Bible, many would contend with me, or agree with me rather, that the greatest letter ever written is the letter to the Romans. Many have said that through the centuries. The, the expansive theology and doctrine and glorifying of God that happens in the book of Romans, I, I think it's the greatest uh, uh, work ever written by man, and it's only that because it was inspired by God. But we have this book called Philippians, and I'm going to assign it the greatest label. I'm going to say that the book of Philippians, as I've considered all the letters in the New Testament, is the most loving letter ever written. Take a read with me. Philippians, we'll start in one. We've already gone through one and two, but we're going to read one through 11. Just listen to this and let this rain down on you. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I just want to ask you a question this morning. What church would not want to receive that? From anybody, much less the man who the Lord used to plant them. What church would not cherish such words coming from such a beloved apostle who planted them and established them? This was a letter of encouragement. And if you read it through and through, there is no instruction. There's no moments of discipline like you might read in the book of Galatians. This is nothing but love and encouragement from a heart of joy. It's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Philippian church, if we could only be in their place, if we could have received such a personal letter like this, we would be able to understand how they flourished in their unity with one another and their love for God. Well, this morning we are going to uh, take this letter in as a congregation because God didn't just write this letter through Paul to the Philippian church. God had this inspired through the Holy Spirit, and I believe that God had this canonized and put into our Bibles so that churches throughout the ages and throughout the generations could feed off of this loving letter 
and be encouraged likewise and be informed and instructed. So this is a timeless letter, and it's not only bound to the Philippian church, it's bound to the church in general, and we are one of those manifestations here at Rocky Point Baptist Church. So let's jump in. I want to look at three perspectives from this letter. I think we get three things from Paul's writing to the Philippians. Number one, we're going to look into Paul's thankfulness for this church and why it is that he's thankful for them. And from that, we need to say, okay, are we looking like that so someone might be thankful for us? Secondly, we're going to see Paul's partnership with the Philippians. And we're going to need to ask ourselves the question, are we engaged in partnership in gospel ministry? Because this is what God had Paul write to the Philippian church to commend them as they functioned as the body of Christ. So we're going to see partnership language and understand how it is that Philippians, the Philippian church was a partner with Paul and how that might impact us today. And then lastly, lastly we're going to see in this prayer or this opening of the letter, we're going to see Paul's ambition for the Philippian church. And I will say to you that Christianity is an ambitious faith. It's not something that is to be put on the shelf. It is something that is to be wielded in the culture that we live in for the glory of God. So let's go first and look at verse 3. And let me just unpack for you briefly here Paul's thankfulness for this Philippian church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul begins his letter to these people by proclaiming his thankfulness to God for them. He's not thankful just to them. He's thankful to God first who established them, who has held them together, who has raised them up, who has grown them and matured them. He is thankful to God for them and he tells them what he says to God about them. That's why this is the most loving letter that there ever was. Because when you go to God and thank God for someone, that's a thank you. You can thank me all day long, but if you tell me you thank God for me, that takes it to an altogether different stratosphere. This proclamation of thanksgiving to God reveals also Paul's genuineness when he says these words of thanksgiving to these people. It's one thing to say thank you, like I said, but it's another thing to say thank God for you. And if we uh, weren't impressed enough with that, he goes on to say, I pray this with joy. These aren't mere words. This is a man's heart oozing out onto the paper. And this is a man pouring his heart out for the building up of others. And I do think that he's getting glory or he's getting uh, uh, the benefit of worshiping God as he thanks God for the Philippian church as he very writes these very words. Let's look at what Paul is thankful for. He's thankful to God for them, but what is it specifically that he's thankful for? Well, first of all, he says, look at this. He says, in all my remembrance of you. Then he says, always in every prayer. And then he says, for you all. This is emphatic language. All, always, every, all. You get the sense that Paul prays a lot. And you get the sense that when he prays a lot, the Philippians are a part of those prayers a lot. This is a loving, loving letter. Can I just say for a moment that Jesus Christ lives at the right hand of God the Father to make intercession for us? I think, just like Jeff introduced his teachings last Wednesday night for this prayer session that we're going to do this this spring, I think Jesus prays just like Paul prays. I think they're tied to the same Holy Spirit and God the Father. All my remembrance of you, always in every prayer for you all. This is Paul praying for Philippians like Jesus prays for Rocky Point Baptist Church. And you fill in the blanks with all the other churches that Jesus prays for like this. And when he prays, The Philippians are on the front of his mind and rolling off his tongue and coming out of his lips. Now, that's when he does it. I think it's often. Now, why is Paul thankful to God for the Philippians? It's right there in verse 5. Because, circle that word, all of this is because 
of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is not just raw emotion. You're nice people. (laughs) You look good. It's not even uh, because I came from you and so you're home. No, this is due to a partnership in the gospel that he's thankful for. Let's talk about partnership for a moment. The heart of partnership, the true heart of a true partnership is defined, I think, in three ways. There's many ways, but I'll give you three. Number one, a true partnership is defined by self-sacrifice on the part of all the partners. Otherwise, it's imbalanced. There needs to be an equality in sacrifice and devotion amongst the partners. There needs to be, secondly, an equal investment from all of the partners to make it a true partnership. Equally, they are invested in Paul's gospel ministry with him. And then thirdly, there needs to be an enduring commitment to this partnership. And if those three elements were not in place, Paul's not writing this letter to the Philippian church. They were devoted self-sacrificially. They were equally invested into his ministry, and this commitment did on the part of them endure through thick and thin, through distance in Paul's absence for long periods of time, through silence because they don't get a letter every day from Paul. It took a while for the mail to be delivered. And so they are in a true partnership, and it is this for which Paul is thankful to God. Now, the purpose of this partnership is not Paul. He's got a very important ministry. He's got many, many important assignments and tasks from God. But their partnership is in this gospel that Paul is about. And lastly, I would say the originator of this partnership is not Paul and the Philippians. It's God, and therefore Paul is thankful to God for their partnership. He says, from the first day until now. Well, last Sunday, we looked at the first day of the Philippian church. Remember in Acts chapter 16, when Paul uh, goes to Philippi off of the Macedonian call that he got in that dream, in that vision, he hits Philippi and he meets a woman down at the river named Lydia, and God opened her heart. And she heard and listened and comprehended all that Paul said, and what Paul said was the gospel. And she became a believer and was baptized. That is the first day of the Philippian church. The first day until now, Paul says, you have been partners with me. Lydia was the first of that partnership. It marched right on through a servant girl who was possessed by a demon who was declaring the truth about Paul and his message. And remember, Paul cast that demon out of her and that got him cast into prison so that he could meet a Philippian jailer. That once the earthquake happened and the doors opened, the Philippian jailer professes faith in Christ because he was about to kill himself. And Paul said, don't, we're still here. And you've got a church born. From the first day until now, you have been partners with me in the gospel, Paul says. And so we get a picture real quickly here of a Philippian church that was born by God through the act of sending Paul to Philippi and forbidding him to go to Asia. Through the act of an earthquake, God builds a church. And this church perseveres in evangelizing the lost people of Philippi. And so the church grows so that we have overseers and elders that we can write a letter to. We see that they've persevered in prayer and even in their financial support for Paul. Turn with me real quickly over to chapter 4, verse 15 of Philippians. Over there, Paul writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So from day one, when he departs, they have funded him and they have been a partner with him. And that probably includes, I think it's very likely that it includes praying and interceding for Paul in his ministry. So this is all due to their shared vision of the urgency of spreading the gospel to a lost world. Paul's thankful to God for them because of that partnership in the gospel. So let me ask us a question this morning. Can such be said of us? Could 
The Apostle Paul, if he was the one the Lord used to establish our church in 1882, and he didn't, but he used his writings to establish it, us. But could Paul write such a letter to us? Do we look at ourselves and do we say we, Rocky Point Baptist Church, are partners in gospel ministry with other entities that are outside of us? We do have a missions platform that is pretty ambitious, and we do give a a tenth of all of our tithes and offerings to the cause of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But are we really, really dialed in with our missions partners to the point that we could truly be called a partnership with them? A healthy church is a church that is in partnership with others that are taking the gospel to places outside of themselves. And that might mean down in town, and that might mean on another continent. We've got to ask ourselves a question as we work through this congregational letter. Are we self-sacrificing in our support of the endeavor of taking the gospel to the nations? Are we fully and rightly invested in taking the gospel message to the ends of the earth. That includes sticking change in baby bottles. That's a small barometer. That's not all we can do, by the way, but that's a small barometer. Are we invested in something as close at hand as the Choices Clinic downtown? And are we invested to the point that we are also engaging in financing and praying for our missionaries in Papua New Guinea, in Uganda, in Bolivia, and all over South Texas? lately are we invested and then are we committed for the long haul to these missionaries that we believe in the work that they're doing that must be the defining mark of us as a church we must have eyes and ears and a heart for those that are outside of us that have gone from us with this gospel and there needs to be a clear and defined partnership with some of these and others that I have named. Are we this way towards one another? Can we look down the rows that we're sitting on and can we say, I am in partnership with these people in this room and the gospel is the center of that partnership? It's a tragic thing to see a church that's full of people that really don't know each other, that really don't live life together, that really don't uh, love one another like Paul's talking about here. We need to be able to look one another in the eye in the halls, in the, in the, at the lunch counter down in town, at breakfast. Uh, we need to be able to text one another, and it needs to be saturated with language and emotion that says, man, these people are gospel partners. And they are united around a common cause, and that common cause is nothing other than the gospel. So these are some of the signs of a healthy church that Paul is writing to them about. A partnership mentality in a church is a sign of health. Let's look at verse 6. Paul goes on to say, I am certain of this. Strong language. What is he certain of? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, here we get thanksgiving to God for the Philippians, and here we get confidence in God that the Philippians will remain in this partnership and actually grow and thrive in this partnership. He has a healthy confidence of God in his work in this Philippian church. He acknowledges God as the one who established this church. He says, he who began a good work in you. Remember, he began that work by giving Lydia a heart to receive Paul's message. God began that. Lydia didn't just get smart one day. God moved a man to Macedonia, to Philippi, and he opened a heart to hear a message. He also acknowledges that God's role in completing them is one of his sovereign role and will. He says, the one who began a good work in you is the one who will bring it to completion. And so God is working in the lives of the Philippian church from birthing them into a church and growing them into a mature congregation. And Paul says, I am certain that the one that began it will complete it. And he puts a time date on it. The completion of it will be 
at the day of Jesus Christ. So we have there a picture. I can't preach this whole sermon, but there's a sermon waiting to happen on sanctification. We are sanctified the minute we believe in Jesus Christ, which means we're set apart. We are made holy before God. We're pure and blameless, yet we still live in this fallen flesh, and so we need to progressively be sanctified and purified and cleansed. And one day when Jesus Christ comes again once and for all, we will be perfected and perfectly holy. And no more need for growth and development and sanctification. So he's saying that God is the one that does this work of sanctification. He started it in you, and he will bring it to completion fully when Jesus Christ returns the second coming. Man, I could preach on that. We'll move on. Listen to Paul's language about this. I want you to turn over to Philippians 2, verse uh, 12. By the way, as you do that... This opening paragraph, verses 3 through 11, largely introduces a lot of topics that Paul's going to address throughout the rest of this letter. Well, here's where he goes with uh, uh, Philippians 2, uh, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling... For it is God who is at work in you. Sounds just like this. What God began in you, he will bring to completion. We are to join God in that work. He says the same thing. I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians, just maybe 10 pages to your right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. It's a great text to have marked in your Bible as well. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is why Paul prays thanksgiving to God for the Philippians. He acknowledges the author of their salvation, and the perfecter of their salvation. And he says, this God who brought you into salvation and who will sanctify you at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a faithful God and he will surely do it. But we need to ask the question, okay, how is he going to do it? So he just zap these Philippians and boom, just does it? Or is there something that he uses in the lives of these Philippians to get this accomplished. We'll look at that in just one moment. Let me just pause and say, what an encouraging passage. Paul has just told us, and I think this applies to Rocky Point Baptist Church, not just the Philippian church. Paul has told us that God began a good work in us. I think he began that work in 1882 when our church was established right here on this property. I believe it began that long ago. And I believe that's 130-something years. Somebody can do the math real quick, maybe 135 years. God has been bringing us about to completion through lots of twists and turns. Lots of ups and downs. That's called the life of a church. Some churches like the Galatian church needed a letter of discipline. Some churches like the Philippian church needed a letter of encouragement. The Corinthian church needed discipline, did they not? Ups and downs in the life of a church made up of fallen people. But all the while, Christ began this church and Christ is bringing this church to completion and getting her, getting us ready for the day when he comes again. What an encouraging word. We need to be faithful to say, wow, we have been assembled at Rocky Point Baptist Church during this era, during this generation. God's doing work here and he's going to bring it to completion. There's a guarantee here and that's an encouraging word. That ought to cause us to say, man, let's engage in what God's doing here. Because he is at work. If we are seeking and living the Lord's will, if we are doing that, 
then we should every day be defined as ambitious for the work of the Lord, confident that it will come to fruition, and happy and joyful in doing it because it's the Lord's work and he's doing it through us. That's encouraging. Think about it for a moment on your personal life. God began a work in you, and he's bringing that work to completion. Well, we marry that over to also us as a congregation. I said last week, Philippians is written to a church. All the yous in here are plural. We need to understand that as we see God and we discern God moving in our midst on different ministry initiatives, uh, or different directions that we would go with the church, staffing issues. We need to be faithful to the Lord when we discern His will, and we need to be bold and ambitious and go places that are even uncomfortable for us. But we go there because we're partners together, and we're certain that God who led us to it will bring it to completion. That's how a church, a healthy church, functions in a life that is defined as a partnership-centered on the gospel. Let's look at the second point this morning. And it is this. We need to see Paul's partnership with this Philippian church. It starts in verse 7. Here's where we get this partnership language. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers. There's the partnership word. You are all partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Through thick and thin, you are my partners, and I'm thankful that God gave you to me so that I would not endure this alone. That's what he has said. Paul is imprisoned, it's very odd, for the very things that he used to imprison people for. He is being persecuted for promoting the way. Acts chapter 9, I think it's verse 1. He persecuted the way of Christ. Well, now he's being persecuted for being a promoter of the way of Christ. But his joy is not robbed. Remember, he thanked God in all of his prayers, and he did it with joy, even though he's in chains. Paul's concern is not for himself. He's writing this letter through Epaphroditus, who's going to deliver it. He's writing this letter back to the Philippian church so they don't sweat, so they don't think our dear Paul is in trouble and he's discouraged. No, he's saying, I am encouraged because I have partners in this. Paul's concern is that these Philippians, who might be prone to worry for him, don't, and they don't get distracted from the gospel work that he has for them. They're absent from him physically. But through letters like this inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're not absent spiritually. Greg read Hebrews chapter 10. I'll just read you three verses from what he read. The writer of Hebrews says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's being born again, you, were, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Paul's getting that. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. The Philippians are partners with Paul, who is being afflicted and persecuted for his faith once he's been enlightened. And by the way, Paul got enlightened on the road to Damascus. Literally enlightened. So, Paul's got these partners back in Philippi, and he's writing them to encourage them. Paul's mission is that of the Philippian church, and it's that of every Christian that ever was born again. It's this, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This was his mission in all circumstances. This is, once he met Christ on the road to Damascus, what Paul lived for, Every day, in every moment. Uh, I like what he wrote to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. He says to Timothy, who is an elder in the church in Ephesus, I'm not able to be with you right now. And if I'm delayed from coming back to you, I write this so that you will know how to behave in the church of the living God. The household of God, the church of the living God. And then he says the church of the living God is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
that language mirrors real nicely here with Paul who says he is defending and confirming the gospel. A church, to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth, is to be a, a collection of people that defends and confirms the gospel. And Paul says the Philippian church does that. Can he say that about us? Do we defend and confirm the gospel amongst ourselves, down in town, around the world? Do we have that mark on God's earth? What does it look like to defend and confirm the gospel? Well, the gospel's under attack. We'll look at that in our evangelism study on Wednesday nights this year. It is a difficult thing to share the gospel in a postmodern world. I said Wednesday night, we live in a world that says there is no absolute truth. Everything is relative to your circumstances and your perceptions and your definitions, and that's just not true. That's an anti-gospel language because this is absolute truth and therefore we need to defend this and we need to confirm this in a world that denies this and blows this off. And it's then that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we need to join Paul in this partnership with the gospel and be defenders and confirmers of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 8. For God is my witness... How I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. There's more love language here that's coming out of Paul. Paul's love for them keeps getting revealed deeper and deeper. He evokes God as his witness here. Now that's a big thing to do. Let's be careful that we don't run around cavalierly saying, God is my witness, but Paul here under inspiration says, God is my witness because it is only God that knows the true heart of a man. And so he is saying, without a doubt, I yearn for you and long for you to be faithful, continue to be faithful partners in this gospel ministry that I have. His yearning for these Philippians is grounded in the affections of Jesus Christ. How affectionate was Jesus towards the Philippians? Because that's the affection Paul says he has for them. So how affectionate was Jesus for the Philippians. How affectionate is Jesus for Rocky Point Baptist Church? Well, I'll tell you this morning, he's got such affection, affection for us that he was willing to step down into earth and become like us and endure 30-something years of life with us so that he could be crucified on a cross by us so that he could rise from the dead for us. That's how much affection Jesus had for the Philippians. And Paul's saying, I've got that kind of affection for you. Wow. And he says, God is my witness. I have this for you. I think Paul would write the same thing to us. I think God had Paul write the same thing to us. This is timeless. And it crosses national barriers and oceans and, and eras, millennia. And this is God's message to us. Got great deep affection for you. What I began in you, I'm going to bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that. I've got one of my apostles that wrote it to a church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. And hey, it applies to you as well. Be encouraged. Stay the course and be in a partnership with me. The bond that holds Paul and this Philippian church together is the affection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. What are the bonds that hold us together? That's a really good question for a church to ask herself. What are the bonds that hold us together? Is it our health? Is it our professions? Is it our hobbies? The weather? Our children? Our finances? Those are all very important things. But they cannot be the things that hold us together. 
They are amongst us, and we need to share those things with one another for sure. But health comes and goes. Money comes and goes. Jobs relocate us. All kinds of things can change all those circumstances. And if those are what brought us together, those can be burst apart quite easily. It is the gospel that must hold us together. It is the gospel that must center us and bond us. Why? Because nothing else on this earth is strong enough to hold us together. Think about it for a moment. You just look across this room. How diverse are we? What backgrounds are we from? What educations did we get? What professions are we in? What health do we have? So on and so forth. We are extremely diverse. And just as easily as we came together, we could go apart based on all those things. There's a lot of diversity in this room. We are prone to wander away from one another. Unless there's something common and lasting that bonds us together. And I want you to know that if we are bonded together on some of those important things, but in all intents and purposes from an eternal standpoint, they're really superficial, we're not going to be a church like the one Paul wrote to in Philippi. We are prone to wander away from one another, and so we need something that's going to keep us together. And so let me tell you some things that we have in common. First of all, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. That ought to be something that says, man, I think I need to hang out with these people. They're they're like me. I have something common with them. I'm made in God's image. But we also have something in common in that we're all fallen, aren't we? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we stop right there, that fallenness could be a source that draws us away from one another. Because in our fallenness, we don't want to be with one another. So now we come to this gospel that brings us together and bonds us together, and it goes like this. I've already said it once. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He lived the life that we couldn't live, that Adam began and couldn't live, and that we couldn't live. He lived without sin, and yet he substituted himself on a cross for us and died so that if we together say, I believe that Jesus died in my place, we are forgiven and pure and blameless before God, and now we have a common bond and the common god is bond is the good news of the gospel of jesus christ and forgiveness for sins and reconciliation with god that comes through his substitution we also have a common bond in that jesus christ rose from the dead on the third day and because we believe in this we believe that we're right with god and if we're right with god let's then be right with one another and let's stay together and love one another, and be partners with one another and others in the gospel. And so we must put the gospel first at the center of our fellowship and at the center of our service. And if we do that, we will be partners like the Philippians are with Paul. Let's look at the third point here. Let's look at Paul's ambition for the Philippians. Now this is really powerful here. Starts in verse 9, goes through 11. And it is my prayer, Paul writes, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Christianity, folks, is ambitious. There's a lot of Christians in the world that we live in today that I don't see as ambitious. The Philippian church was very ambitious. A healthy church as ambitious. Listen to what Paul said over in Philippians 3. Look at verse 12. One page over probably. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Listen to that language. Press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is ambitious language. That's how we need to live, yes, as individuals, and that's how we need to live collectively as a church. Pressing on, striving forward for the upward call in Christ Jesus. Here in this verse, starting in verse 9, Paul prays that the Philippians will abound more and more in the first thing is love. Love for God and love for another. Remember the the lawyer that asked Jesus, what what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is here saying, I want that kind of love for God and for neighbor to abound more and more. I want you to strive. I want you to press on towards the goal. I want you to lay all the distractions behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Be ambitious, church, with the gospel. And this is not, by the way, a sentimental kind of love. It's not. It comes with knowledge and discernment. That's the second thing. Look there. He wants them to abound more and more in love with knowledge and discernment. So love is not just an emotion. It is an emotion. But I want you to know that in the biblical context, love is also a behavior. It's a behavior. And behaviors come by being instructed and informed. We learn something and then we do something. This is not just a sentimental emotion that that Paul hopes that they'll just love each other more. No, he wants knowledge and discernment to drive, to be the catalyst for this love. I'll give you an example. I love Jennifer more today than I did 22 years and 10 months ago. Guarantee you. I loved her a lot when I asked her to marry me, and I loved her a lot the first few years. But man, I love her exponentially more today. Why? Because I know her better. I've studied her over the years. And I have knowledge of her and discernment of her. And because of that, my love has abounded more and more. It happened because of knowledge and understanding. The same thing is true in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I loved him as a young boy, junior high. I loved him. But I didn't love him like I love him today. It has abounded more and more. Why? Because I have poured through this over and over and over again. And my knowledge of him and my discernment of him has grown through my instruction in the word. And thus I love him more. And so my love, it's not just an emotion because I do something with this love. I stand in a pulpit and I preach. I leave the business world and I go to seminary to study so that I can do this. I meet with people and counsel them on the word. These are actions of love, not just feelings of love. I don't just sit in in my house and go, man, I love Jesus. No, it makes me do something. So our love for Christ comes from more knowledge of Christ. We we must, as a people, like the Philippian church, we must know the person of Christ more and more each day so that we can love him more and more each day. We need to know the work of Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb. We need to know that work well so that we can love him more. And then when we love him more, we've loved God. And the result of that is then we love neighbor. You see how this works. And then it works like compound interest at the bank. If we love Christ, we'll go get more knowledge about him in our word, which will make us love him more, which will make us go back to his word more, which will make us love him more, and it abounds more and more 
and more. And this must happen to us as individuals, yes. But this has to happen to us as a church. And now you start seeing why we are so text-driven in our sermons. Why we are biblically based in our Wednesday night discipleship classes. Why we sow the Word of God into our children's hearts and, and walk through the Bible. And why we have our kids sing the Bible. We are introducing them and us to more understanding of Jesus Christ so that we can discern Him better. And the outpouring of that should be love. An active love. For him and for others. You know, we study what we love. I was in a fly fishing shop yesterday. I'm considering beginning the practice of tying my own flies. I don't yet have time in my life for that, but one day I, can, I hope to be able to tie my own flies and fish with them and catch a fish, actually. I want to catch that fish, and I want to take that fly, and I want to frame it, you know. I made this, and I caught this with it. That takes study, and I love that. You have something like that in your life. When I was a kid, I loved baseball cards, and I studied them. I still have stats here to this day. We study what we love. Do you love Jesus Christ? It's a shame to fill your mind with fly-tying techniques and baseball statistics and to be void of this. We study that that we love. There's a place for fly-tying study. There's a place for it, but it cannot take the place of this. And so we study what we love, and when we do that, we grow to love it more because we understand it more. You know this to be true in golf and everything else in between. Quilting, we've got a quilting group, scrapbook group, that's what I meant to say. You study what you love and you become good at it because you understand it and you have knowledge on it. We must love Jesus and study Jesus so that we can love Jesus more, so that we'll study Jesus more, so that we'll love him more. And it just keeps on going. And this is how God, who began a good work in us, brings it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we do this together. We do this as a congregation. And we do it in private. So out of love, we study the Bible to know Christ more, and the result is that we love him more. And then last, Paul's purpose for praying for growth and knowledge and discernment is there in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him. We are to approve what is excellent and to know it and love it. Philippians uh, 4, verse 8. Paul speaks further to this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Study these things. Become knowledgeable of these things. Discern these things so that you can approve what is excellent in the day of Christ. He wants it so that we can be pure. We can have right motives. We can be blameless. We can be without fault or lacking offense at the day of Christ. And it's all so that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That's substitution language. It comes through Christ who was our substitute on the cross. He speaks often here of a day of Christ that will come. Every person must be sincere and blameless like he's praying for on the day of Christ for that to be a good day. If not, it will be a horrifying day that begins an eternity that is indescribably terrible. It begins with salvation. He who began a good work in you and it proceeds through sanctification, that same one will bring it to completion. And all of this is to the glory and praise of God. So I'm going to close by asking this question. What about Rocky Point Baptist Church and this letter to the Philippians? Are we defined as a people who are deeply committed to one another and those that are outside of us in a gospel partnership?
we have got to have an affirmative answer to that question if we are going to be anything remotely close to what God designed us to be. Are we abounding more and more in our love and knowledge and discernment? Are we as a congregation rightly measured in how much word we're taking in together? And are we rightly measured in how much word we're taking in in private? If we are growing in our knowledge and discernment, we will be growing in our love and we will be a healthy church. Are we ready individually and as in a church for the day of Christ? Do you think we as a collection, what if, the Bible doesn't say this, but what if we together had to stand before Christ and give an account to him for what we did together in our partnership? Would that be a good conversation? These are questions that churches need to ask of themselves. And in so doing, we fulfill Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we thank you for this encouraging opening to this loving letter. There's been a lot of questions asked of us here this morning. They're not questions that we can flippantly respond to in the moment. They're questions that require pondering, evaluation. Father, it's my prayer that through the preaching of this kind of text, we would be defined as a people who are deeply committed to one another because we're partners in the gospel. Would you make that true of us? Father, I pray on behalf of this congregation, we want to abound more and more in our love and our knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to do this so that we're ready for the day that he comes again. And we want to do it so that others will be ready for that day as well. And so we need you, who began a good work in us, Father, to take this message and use it to bring us to the completion that you are talking about for the day of Christ. It's your work that you've asked us to join you in. We can't do it without you. You've promised that you're faithful and you will surely do it. So we ask you to fulfill that promise this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. That guides my heart.